Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. I'll be reading verses 20 through 23. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it is only by the grace of your calling that any of us can hear these words. And to any extent, resignate with them. Oh, help us worship you this morning over the beauty of verse 21. Oh, let us revel in the blood of Christ who has purchased this for us. To the glory of his holy name, Amen. Amen. Now, uh, I do not often do what I'm going to do this morning, which is take one little short statement and have a whole sermon on it. But this morning, I will. It is the second half of verse 21. And to die is gain. For every morbid person out there in the world who thinks about death, there, there are thousands of persons who don't think about death nearly enough. Like Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil. In trouble, they are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us, Lord, to number our days in order that we may get a heart of wisdom. It is good to number the days of your life, which end in death. It is good for us to ponder our deaths. Part of Christian living is learning to die well. It is growing in the reality that in Christ to die is gain. And so this morning, the question is this. What happens when a Christian 
dies. Now, if one, if one is not a Christian, the goal of this message is to wake him or her up from their indifference to the question of death and eternity. Death is gain for Christians, not for non-Christians. Death ushers in, for non-Christians, ushers them into condemnation and suffering. Deep down, death is the great enemy on the horizon. And so this morning, the question is not what happens at the second coming of Christ or what happens in the future resurrection from the dead or what are our glorified bodies, what will they be like? The question is not about the new heavens and the new earth which are coming someday. But this morning, the question is what happens at death? Now, if you die in that unnatural state of being a disembodied spirit, what happens? Paul died about 1,950 years ago. He's been dead that long. Was he right when he said to die is gain? He still has not been resurrected from the dead. He does not have his new glorified body. Was he right? And so this morning... It is the contemplation of, of death for the believer. And the contemplation of death and eternity, it's crucial for, for a few reasons. First reason is this. Because the possibilities for joy and misery after you die are far greater than the few years that you have here on this earth in your mortal body before you die. The Bible is clear. This life is but a vapor. Here and gone. And the age to come is unending. Forever and ever. It matters infinitely. Second reason is that the contemplation of death forces the question as to whether our faith is real. Is it biblical? Is our faith in God, in Christ, in the gospel? Or is it in some Subjective experience or thoughts that function as an emotional cushion to get through the rough patches of this short life and, you know, have a network of friends in the religious community. Facing eternity can have the amazing effect of sobering us up out of religious delusions. Third, thinking about death and eternity helps us keep God the center. How? By constantly testing whether we are more in love with the world than we are with God, than we are with our Savior. 
It forces the issue of whether the thought of dying gives us more pain at losing what we love on earth than the joy of gaining Christ. As Paul says in verse 21. And fourth, when the reality of death is gain grips the Christian. That is the power. That's what frees the believer from fear and instills courage. Courage to live faithfully to Christ, particularly in the face of persecution, which is the whole context that verse 21 is found in. It's about courage. With full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or whether they execute me and put me to death for my faithfulness to Christ. Because to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Being confident of what happens to you when you die as a believer is the power for your daily courage. And for not losing heart through the pain and the diminishing uh, health issues if God gives you 80 years in this life. And so next... Why is death gain for the Christian? A few reasons. First, at the moment a Christian dies, their soul, their spirit, their essence will be made perfect. And by perfect, what I mean is this. A permanent freedom from sin. Now, the unregenerate person does not desire that great gain. But the believer, the regenerate, who, who have tasted the goodness of God and His beauty and His holiness and His hatred for sin, they've tasted it because the Spirit of God Himself dwells within them. And yet throughout this mortal life, we all continue to carry our sin nature, our sinful inclinations until we die. That person, the regenerate person, longs for purity and freedom from sin and evil that dwells within us. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 12, verse 22 to 23 puts it this way. Believer, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. At death, we will be done with the inner war and the grieving experiences of offending our great Lord Jesus who loves us. 
and who gave his life for us. That's why death is gain. Secondly, at the moment of death, we will be relieved of the pain of this world. Remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus in the middle of the story? Jesus says this, And he, the rich man, after death, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. The great reversal is coming. For believers, pain, suffering are gone. And then, comfort. Thirdly, at the moment of death, we will be given profound rest in our souls with God. In Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, we read, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain or killed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, there will be a calm, tranquil, serenity in the care of God that surpasses anything we have known down here on earth in our happiest moments. Death will be for the believer a deep at homeness. As Paul said in Philippians 1.23, my desire is to die is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better. <clears throat> so now what I want to do is I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 and we're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage. 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, begin with verse 16. I'll read through chapter 5, verse 10. So we do not lose heart, 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so what we have here is Paul showing the Corinthians why he, and thus by implication, you Corinthians and all believers, should not lose heart. In spite of all the the pain, the persecution, suffering, and afflictions of this life, that's the context. Just jump up or back to verse 8 of chapter 4 for a moment that sets up this context. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the context. And that's what leads him to his crescendo in chapter 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather Be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's his main point. And so let's slowly then work our way through it. Go back to verse 16 of chapter 4. 
Let's follow Paul's line of thought and first see what he says is threatening to him and to all believers. What threatens to, to rip our, our bravery, our courage out of our, out of our hearts, to, to lose heart? And then what is it? What is it that keeps Paul from losing heart? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Okay, there's the threat. It's a threat that we're all faced with. Our bodies are dying, decaying, wasting away. If God gives you 50 years and 60 and 70 and 80 and as you go on, the body is deteriorating more and more. The eyes go. The hearing goes. You find out that you have joints in your body that you never knew you had as the pain may become constant. Your arteries year after year after year of eating become more and more clogged. Paul knows, like everyone else, he is physically dying. And that's the threat. Whether he's taken out by getting his head cut off by the state, the government, or whether he gets to live to 80, and drops dead. He's dying. And that's a threat. That's a threat to his courage. It's a threat to his joy. So why does he not lose heart? His answer is right there at the second half of verse 16. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. If his decaying body with the prospect of death tends to make Paul lose heart, something else overcomes that to cause him to gain heart. That's the flow of verse 16. Even though this body, this mortal flesh is dying, it's wasting away, nevertheless, nevertheless, we are being renewed on the inner person Day by day. And that inner renewal, that, that something else is spelled out in verse 18. He defines the inner renewal. As we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, the temporal, they're always changing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul repeats what he just said there. Flip forward, chapter 5, verse 7, very famous verse when he says, We walk by faith, not by sight. He means verse 18. We walk by faith, not by sight, does not mean that we walk 
you know, uh, blindly into the dark without any objective truth or knowledge or hope. No. But what that means is that the most valuable, the most important realities in all existence are beyond our five senses. Now, at this point. We look at those promises of a heart of faith. We look at what is unseen naturally. We look at them, though, with our eyes, the eyes of our hearts. We look at what? We look at the objective truths with the eyes of our hearts, those truths that we learn through the testimony of the Hebrew prophets and the apostles. And what truth? What do, what do we focus on to experience the day-by-day day renewal of our, of our inner nature in the face of death and dying? Verse 17 is the answer. It's a summary answer. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. That's what we look at. And that verse 17 is actually unfolded in chapter 5. Verses 1 to 10. But if you take verse 17, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You take those words at face value, they are stunningly encouraging because they are saying the decaying of your body, your death, your experiences, persecution, imprisonment, sickness, disease, old age. All of it is not meaningless. The pains and the struggles and the persecutions and the imprisonment of Paul and suffering for righteousness sake and afflictions, they're not happening in vain. But instead, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all. Comparison. As we look, that's his daily life, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, the unseen things that Paul looks at to renew his inner man is the weight of glory that's being prepared for him, not just after all these experiences down here, but through them and by the wasting away of the body. So now, what is it that Paul sees when he looks to the unseen glory more fully? He unpacks verse 17 in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. He fills in some of what he's gazing at as he goes through this life. And two of those things are the resurrection 
from the dead and the judgment of believers in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. But neither one of those is our focus in this morning's sermon. Our focus is on chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Being with Christ immediately when you die. But to see this now and to appreciate what Paul is doing, let's start with chapter 5, verse 1. Verses 1 to 5 are the section on the physical bodily resurrection of the dead. And there is a crucial connection between that hope, which is part and parcel of the gospel, of what salvation is. There is a connection between that hope and the hope of being with Christ before that, without a new resurrection body. Being with Him. Immediately at death. Verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Okay. He calls the decaying body. He calls it a tent. He says we know this. We have a building from God. We have a house. Not made with hands. It's eternal. In the heavens. Okay. A building. Not a tent. A tent. And then he uses the word a building as opposed to a tent for a house. In other words, something much more durable. He's referring to an everlasting, resurrected, glorified human body. Read on. For in this tent, this present body that is dying, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, our resurrection body. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Okay. In other words, Paul is saying he does not prefer to put off his present mortal body Take it off like you would take off clothing before you get into the shower. He, he does not prefer that and to become a disembodied soul. That's what Paul means by not be found naked. Read on. For while we are still in this tent that's wasting away, we groan. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. In other words, again, we don't want to be a bodiless soul. That's unnatural. That's not how God made the human being. We are body and soul. But that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal, wasting away, doomed to die, this body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. Okay, stop for a moment. Verses 1 to 5, here's Paul's point. If he had his preference, he would choose to receive his new resurrected body at the second coming of Christ without having to die and be naked, unclothed, bodiless. That's what he would prefer. And the reason that he gives is that the experience of nakedness, that is of being stripped of his body, is not as good as having his body, mortal body, swallowed up by life as he is changed in the twinkling of an eye at the second coming of Christ. And this means that the ultimate hope of the believer is not to die and to be freed from our bodies. But the ultimate hope of the believer is to be raised with new, indestructible bodies, just like Jesus himself has right now. And has had since three days after his death, he was raised to glorify humanity. That's salvation fulfilled in the glorification. Or what Paul is saying, best of all, <laughs> would be for me to be alive at the second coming of Christ so I can bypass this disembodiment state. And just be instantly transformed like will happen to some. So I don't have to go through the temporary state of disembodiment. Okay. That's what he said so far. Here's the question for this morning. Does that mean that dying now before Christ returns... Does that mean that our dying, does that mean that our going to be with Christ doesn't actually happen? Or that it's not gain? And Paul's answer in this passage, as well as Philippians 1, is no, it doesn't mean that at all. Read on. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body now, like we all are at this moment, we are away from the Lord. Oh, we have His Spirit is in us. We have connection. But in the way He's going to refer to, we are not with Him in that sense. For we walk by faith not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body, disembodied, in death, and thus be at home with the Lord, with Jesus. Okay, follow Paul's thinking here. He just said in verse 4 that he does not want to be unclothed. His first preference is to not be absent from the body. But the context in which he said that 
is in comparison to the ultimate goal of salvation, the resurrection of our bodies unto immortality forever. But if that is not possible at the moment, if the choice, Paul is saying, for me is between more life here on earth, living by faith in the promise, or dying, dying in order to be with Christ as gain, then he prefers to depart the body and to be with Jesus, even if it means nakedness, being a disembodied soul for a time, being unclothed is far more preferable. And the reason for this willingness to leave his body behind is not because his body is bad or evil. Paul looks forward to the resurrection of his mortal body into immortality. But the reason he's willing to be disembodied for a time is because being at home with the Lord, which is impossible while he's living his mortal life, to be with Jesus in a way he can't now is so irresistibly attractive to Paul. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Oh, death is gain for the believer. Because those believers are those who are being renewed day by day. As they look not at the temporal, they look at the unseen future promises gospel and that drives their daily life and so may all of us at sovereign grace go on being renewed in our inner beings day by day in other words so that we are growing more and more in love with God and our Lord Jesus and that our longing for Christ is expanding so that we can say with Paul in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. I want more of him day by day as I look to the unseen as I walk by faith in those promises, which I can't see yet. And to die for me is gain because I gain more intimacy with Christ even though I would be unclothed still awaiting the future resurrection. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ because that is far better. Let's pray.
Lord, work the gospel in us. Work the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit into our inner beings. So that as we, day by day, don't live by sight, but walk by faith, just prayer, communion with you, desiring the work of your spirit, producing care and love for others as we shine as lights in the world because we are filled with courage. We're filled with bravery, not of ourselves, but all rooted in the promise that as we live, it is you, Christ, worthy to die for, be shamed for, to experience loss for, because even to die for us is gain immediately and forever and ever, because one day you will return and our mortal bodies are rotted and blown away in the wind of decay and dust will be swallowed up by immortal human life forever as you have Jesus now. We thank you for such a glorious salvation. Amen.